think something I really love is if somebody knows something about the world that I've written about, like if someone is a political reporter and they read Rod and they said, oh my God, like I, I loved it. Like you totally nailed this or like they worked in the White House. So I do, I, I do kind of want to hear if anyone, if anyone from Saturday Night Live reads romantic comedy. I think I just try to kind of have an outlook of, you know, not being super mushy, but being kind of compassionate about the complexity of the, the human experience and what it is to be alive. People have a bunch of different guesses about the inspiration for Noah, and people have really different guesses based on their own age group. So someone might be, someone who's like in their 20s might be like, is it Justin Bieber? Is it Harry Styles? Is it, is it Shawn Mendes? And then someone maybe in their 40s like me might be like, oh, is it John Legend? Is it Bruno Mars? You know, is it Ed Sheeran? Or And then someone recently said to me, is it Richard Marks? And I thought, Richard Marks? What? It is not Richard Marks. Welcome to Bestsellers. I'm Natalie Jameson. And I'm Phil Williams. And this, I know we always say it, but this one is a belter, isn't it? Do we say it all the time? Yeah, I do. I get really excited about who we get. I really love our authors. Do you know what I mean? I think the beauty of doing a books podcast is that we generally only book them because we've read the book and loved it, right? It, it, that's the way around it comes. Do you know what I mean? It yeah. kind of, it's not like, okay, we'll say yes to a load of guests and then you get to the book and you're like, oh, the book's not that great, but we've already said yes. It doesn't happen that way, does it? No, but also I think on this one, I mean, again, I've said this before, like if you've clicked on this episode, you know who the guest is because the name is there. So this is all that weird thing that happens in podcasts. But anyway. So it doesn't I mean do... that it, it was automatically great though, does it? No, but what I was going to say was that Curtis Sittenfeld, I think, is yeah. one of those people who I'm like, I adore her writing. But I'm like, well, she is she going to chat to us? Like, she could do anyone. Like, she does these huge, like, I agree. You know, big events and stuff. And she's... And can I ask you now, because I've never yeah. asked you this before. Did, did you know her? Have you interviewed her before? No. No, me neither. Do you know what I'm going to confess to you now? What? That romantic comedy, the new yeah. one, that's the first Sittenfeld that I've read. That's fine. Yeah, but I now want to go back because the Rodden mm. book sounds ace. Mm-hmm, for starters mm-hmm. the short stories one sounds good i love a book yeah. of short stories yeah yeah no all her stuff i i haven't read every single thing she's done did um, you read Rodham? uh i haven't finished it yet right why did i stop reading that one i didn't stop reading it because it wasn't good i think it was that i think i had to read something else or do something else i didn't want to do and then you know sometimes when you're like why mm. didn't i go back to that why didn't but I go back to it yeah it's so good it's so good um or I might have been, was it in that mood where I was just like annoyed it about politics? It was just politics? pre-pandemic, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was that you time. Got anyway. <laughs> a lot of us didn't read. I've just been through, I just want to say this, by the way, I've just been through a really horrible period of being unable to read. Mm. You know, where you think, I know what will do me good now, a read. And you pick up the book, and I've read the same paragraph four times. It's so just, just can't not focus. going in. Yeah. yeah. This is one of the books that got me out of it. Yay. And again, this was a Natalie Jameson recommendation. Thanks very much. Yeah, like Curtis Sittenfeld is great, and... It's. I love this conversation so much. I think I sounded a bit nervous to start with, but can I just... Um, really? Go... I didn't think that. But also... Uh, Were you a bit fangirl? Think, uh, no, it was genuinely more because the where I was doing the recording, the yeah. heating had just come on, and <laughs> I it coincided with having a bit of a perimenopausal like hot flush, and I was like, I'm oh, really sweaty, yeah. and like the heating's oh. on, I can't turn the radiator off. Um, well, if it helps anyway... We do these on Zoom. You weren't glowing. 
But I did see you turning around. I just thought the cats were coming in because you got yeah. There was there cats. was a cat at the door as well. Yeah, there you go. It was trying to come in, but it's fine. What do you mind me asking? I mean, you can cut this out if you don't want to answer. But when you get one of those, what? Yeah. How do you cool yourself down? What do you do? I haven't bought does it anything. Just go yet. away. Yeah, it does. Like I think it's different for different people. I am in no ways like an expert on the perimenopause, apart from being a woman, and this happens to fifty percent of the population. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, mine are kind of like um. When I was like younger, like a teenager and in my 20s, I used to like get embarrassed really easily and I'd kind of blush like red. Ah, I could feel okay. myself going red and getting like hot and stuff. And it's like that basically. Right. So it's kind of quite an instant hot, but it doesn't then seem to last that long. So maybe like, I don't know, I might just be getting embarrassed or like it could be, who knows, a combination of of everything. But um, yeah, it's not hugely nice, but like, where are we now? It's like, we're doing this recording in March. So yeah. It's not so bad. Like, come back to me in June. I'll be summer. like, yeah. yeah, yeah. But then, don't you get away with it more because you're hiding in plain sight? Because when what it's 37 degrees, well, we're all sweating like that. Aren't we? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, maybe, maybe. Let's see. Less conspicuous. Yeah. Yeah, you, know, you should give me a great idea for a range of merch, though, for the podcast. Should we get some T-shirts done that says on the front "Come for the books" and on the back it says "Get perimenopause." It's like a bonus content. <laughs> <laughs> Who'd have thought on a books podcast we'd be discussing? But I'm glad that we do. Do you know what I, mean? I think? It's not, great. Right? Yeah, yeah it's 100%. like this 100%. is all like bollocks chat anyway. <laughs> but that's the stuff that I really like about podcasts. That's like you know, yeah. um, me too. Yeah, We've yeah. Each other years, we, nothing's off limits, is it? No. <laughs> anyway, here is the perimenopausal Natalie Jameson introducing <laughs> our favourite Curtis Sittenfeld. <laughs> I may have said this before on this podcast, but I have genuinely got a bunch of writers, actors, musicians, and whatever they produce, I'm in because I just trust their choices. It's kind of my personal, like, mental coterie or collective of people. Um, and I'm always just fascinated to see what they do next. And Curtis Sittenfeld is one of those people for me. She's written so many brilliant books. We're going to chat to her about her eighth today called Romantic Comedy. But she has written American Wife, The Eviscerating Short Stories, You Think It, I'll Say It, uh, Rodham, which explores what might have happened if Hillary hadn't married Bill Clinton. Um Frankly, romantic comedy as well is just the perfect distraction from all the other shit that's going on in the world. Uh, so, Curtis, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us about it today. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Just in case you uh, aren't aware that much of sort of me and Phil and our background and what we do, we both used to work for the BBC. Um, we have like a, a background in entertainment journalism. So the kind of subject matter. Hey, just, just if they're listening, one book. of us still does. One of us still does. <laughs> <laughs> The kind of subject matter is quite close to our hearts anyway. Um, and we uh, we set up this podcast a few years ago now because we just hate book snobbery, can't abide it. Like people should read what they want to read and popular reading is a joyous thing. So like mm. shut up if you're like like being down on people for what they read and what they like to read and stuff. So um, that's where we're coming from. And it's fine to swear as I... Ha! <laughs> <laughs> so can you because it's always better coming from your head than ours and your mouth than ours. Um, can you just set up romantic comedy for people? Yes. So the main character is, um, is named Sally. She's in her late thirties. She's a writer for a, a sketch comedy show. 
um, in New York and she's good at what she does. She got married and divorced a long time ago. So she's not, she's not really actively searching for love. She has like a pretty good life overall. Um, she writes a sketch mocking the phenomenon of um, talented, but rather maybe ordinary looking men on the show who are writers or cast members who date these incredibly famous, beautiful, talented women who are musical guests or guest hosts. Um, and she kind of is mocking how it would never happen with like an ordinary woman and a um, hot, super famous male celebrity. And then that week, the guest host is a pop singer named Noah. And Sally thinks that there might be chemistry between um, her and Noah, but she isn't really sure. And, you know, all her all her neuroses arise kind of alongside all of her hope and excitement. And is that what happens on Saturday Night Live? I mean, people here in, in the UK know Saturday Night Live. They know what it is, but they won't maybe know the cast of players so well. Yeah. So it's interesting, actually, because I've I've talked to a number of people in the UK who say like, oh, I've seen some of the viral clips or sketches, but I've never seen it in its entirety. And um, so, yes, this is a real phenomenon. Um, Scarlett Johansson is married to um, Colin Jost, Jost, who she met yeah. on the show. He's He's been, you know, uh, I think he he arrived at the show in 2005. Um, he is very handsome, by the way. Uh, I was but, just about to but, say. I was about to say, is he normal looking? <laughs> I mean, he's he's very handsome. She obviously, I think, is a household name. I would say he is not a household name. Um, I mean, uh, we can we can go down this path too if you want to. He, his memoir was one that I you know used for research, and it's quite funny and endearing. But um, Pete Davidson, of course, famously oh, yeah. has dated Ariana Grande um, after she was a musical guest. He dated Kim Kardashian after she was the guest host. And then Emma Stone is married to a writer that she that she met on the show. I, it's this is terrible. Every time I this comes up, I think I think his name is Dave McCory. I'm not even sure. You would think I'd remember to look it up, but <laughs> I, I, apparently I never do. And then, and then they're a lot hard to remember when they're normal. I know. And again, I mean, he seems attractive. I've never heard his voice. I've never like, you know, he's it's not this is not a criticism of of the men. It's more, um, you know, an observation that it's it's a phenomenon that seems to work only in one direction or a pattern that works in, in just one direction. Dave McCary. I just looked him up. Oh, OK. So I was close. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so yeah, I, was, yeah. I wasn't correct, but I was close. <laughs> Um, so I wanted to ask you specifically about this. And in, in a, an old interview that you posted up on your website with MDASH, you say about yourself, you say, when I was single, I took dating rejection extremely personally. I think I have more confidence as a writer than a human being. Did that inform Sally's character? Was that the starting point for Sally's character or not? Um, Probably. I mean, I don't, I, I wouldn't say that I consciously modeled Sally on myself and I wouldn't say that Sally is a stand-in for me but you know she is a female writer and I am a female writer I mean it's like it's not a huge departure it's not she's not you know like an archaeologist or you know she it's not like 
she grew up in some very different part of the world or something. I mean, she certainly has several traits in common with me. <laughs> and did you, I mean, obviously there are loads of books that have been written by people who work at Saturday Night Live and uh, about the show itself and the history of it, but did you actually go to it? Did you visit it? Did you kind of walk those corridors? So those are actually kind of two separate questions. I didn't really walk the corridors. I Like I did go to a dress rehearsal. So on Saturday night, um, there's a, a run through of the entire show, which is actually longer than the real show because they end up cutting a few sketches. Um, and that's, I believe that starts it. Now I, I also can like not being able to remember Emma Stone's <laughs> husband's name. Um, it starts at like say eight or eight thirty, and then and then the entire audience is escorted out, and an entire new audience comes in and watches the live show. And I saw that dress rehearsal. The point when I saw it was when the book was almost finished. So most of the research I did, like it was almost like I was checking to make sure that what I thought was right was right I mean I have some I don't know plausible deniability or something because I've changed the name like it's not called Saturday Night Live it's called mm. The Night Owl so it's totally different um, it's so Saturday Night Live yeah, yeah no it, it, it's definitely inspired by Saturday Night Live and it, I, I see the book in some ways as like a love letter to Saturday Night Live but um but I didn't I interviewed some people who've worked for the show in the recent past. Like I did a lot of different kinds of research, but I did not have like all, all access pass mm. to the studio. I don't uh, like, it was sort of like by the skin of my teeth that I had contact with anyone who's ever worked there. That must've been fascinating though anyway. And it, I think it's also as a kind of side point often that you know those documentaries and things when they're like authorized by the estate or by the show it's about they're kind of they're never quite as real anyway because it's like the sanctioned version right yeah actually I, I think I do think so I live in Minneapolis Minnesota you know sort of like up near Canada not LA not New York and I think probably in my career, like whether it's writing about Saturday Night Live or writing about, you know, first ladies like Hillary Rodham or um, Laura Bush, I think that the fact that that I'm actually not in that world and it's it's not authorized has served me in the sense that I'm not I'm not like a political journalist who's afraid of burning bridges or not being invited to some party because I'm like never invited to any parties anyway. <laughs> and same with SNL. Like I don't I don't know these people. I never. I mean, it, it's so funny because people have really passionate feelings about Lauren Michaels, who's the creator mm -hmm. and, you know, producer. And I, he left SNL from like 1980 to 1985, but otherwise he's been there from 1975 to the present. And it's just kind of like the comedy kingmaker of the United States. Um, and and like so many people who've been on the show, they have their impersonation of him um, and I think people they say this is actually in the book, but they they say that that um, people's daddy issues are sort of projected onto Lauren Michael. So you if you, if you think you have a great relationship with your dad, then you feel you know you might feel like you have a great relationship with Lauren, and if you feel like Lauren just never gives you the attention or affirmation that you want, like that might be you know this replication of of your relationship, but. Again, I I have never hoped that Lauren Michaels will like support the the sitcom that I'm trying to get onto a network. So it's just I like I don't I'm kind of agnostic, I guess maybe, and I think that is liberating. But would you like him to like your book? 
Oh, that's an interesting question. I think, sure. Well, yeah, sure. Like if, like if, if somebody said, oh, he hates it. I don't even think, the funny thing about it, because SNL is such an institution, it rarely acknowledges media about itself. So I don't, I don't really expect anything. Well, um, joining us right now, live from New York. <laughs> <laughs> if Imagine. only I had that kind of pudding. Recorded from Minnesota. <laughs> <laughs> um, should we steer Curtis to a reading before we get yeah. engrossed? Because we're doing that thing that we do where we get mm. so engrossed because we both love this book so mm -hmm. much. And we've got thousands of questions to ask you, but I think for the those of people listening who haven't read it yet and maybe have just seen the cover or read the blurb on the back, what, where have you chosen to join the story for your reading? Well, I actually think that the opening is a good place because it sort of explains the premise of the book and, you know, you don't, it doesn't matter if you know it's who's spoiler here. spoiler-free. Yeah. Go for it. You should not, I've read many times, reach for your phone first thing in the morning. The news, social media, and emails all disrupt the natural stages of waking and create stress, which is how I'll preface the fact that when I reached for my phone first thing one morning, and learned that Danny Horst and Annabelle Lilly were dating. I was furious. I wasn't furious because I was in love with Danny Horst, or for that matter, with Annabelle Lilly. Nor was I furious because two more people in the world had found romantic bliss while I remained mostly single. And I wasn't furious that I hadn't heard the news directly from Danny, even though we shared an office. The reason I was furious was that Annabelle Lilly was a gorgeous, talented, world-famous movie star, and Danny was a schlub. He wasn't a bad guy, and he too was talented. But for Christ's sake, he was a TV writer, a comedy writer. He was a male version of me. He was pasty-skinned and sleep-deprived and sarcastic. And perhaps because he was male, or perhaps because he was a decade younger than I was, he was a lot less self-consciously people-pleasing and a lot more recklessly crass. At after parties, he was undisguisedly high or tripping. He referred often, almost guilelessly, to both his social anxiety and his porn consumption. When he'd considered going on Rogaine, I had, at his request, used his phone to take pictures of the top of his head so that he could see exactly how much his hair was thinning there, and when he applied the medication the first time, I'd checked to make sure the foam was evenly rubbed in. And I was so familiar with the various genres of his burps that I could infer from them what he'd eaten recently. Danny was like a little brother to me. I adored him and he stank and got on my nerves. But his foul and annoying ways had apparently not precluded Annabelle Lilly's interest. She'd been the guest host of the Night Owls three weeks prior, coinciding with the release of her latest film, the fourth in an action franchise in which she played a corrupt FBI agent. She delivered the opening monologue while wearing a one-shouldered black satin cocktail dress with a thigh slit, highlighting her slender yet curvy body. Her long red hair had been styled into old Hollywood waves. Annabelle was beautiful and sweet and charming, and if she didn't have the best comic timing, she was completely game, which was just as important. 
In one sketch, she'd been called on to play a woodchuck, which entailed crawling around on all fours and wearing a furry suit and two enormous prosthetic front teeth. In fact, Danny had written this sketch, meaning it was plausible that they'd first been attracted to each other while rehearsing it. The woodchuck part was endearing enough that I might have been able to forgive them both, except that theirs was the third such pairing that had occurred at TNO in the last few years. And as anyone knows who's ever written a joke or heard a fairy tale or read an article in the style section of a newspaper, there's a rule of three. In this case, it constituted the trend of a romance between a bona fide celebrity and a TNO staffer who'd met on the show, but crucially, a bona fide female celebrity and a male staffer. The year before, at a wedding I'd attended, an icy blonde Oscar-winning British actress named Imogen Wagner had married a cast member named Josh Beekman, best known for his recurring character, Backney Guy. And the year before that, the head writer, Elliot Markovitz, five foot eight, 40, and my topsider-wearing boss, had married a multi-platinum album-selling pop singer named Nicola Dornan, five foot ten, thirty, and a special envoy for the UN. And this, of course, was the essence of my fury, that such couples would never exist with the genders switched, that a gorgeous male celebrity would never fall in love with an ordinary, dorky, unkempt woman. Never, no matter how clever she was. But I also knew as I lay in bed glaring at the screen of my phone, Danny and Annabelle's debut as a couple had occurred the night before in the form of making out at the club where Annabelle's 24th birthday had been held, that I would write about my fury. Just as I always did, I'd turn my feelings into comedy, and that was how I'd cure myself. Lovely. That really sets it up nicely. And so one of the things I really wanted to do with you is to... So I was thinking this afternoon about looking forward to speaking to you. How am I going to convey why I love this book so much? I think it's really important to not just say it's brilliant, but to say why it's brilliant. And one of the things is that it's it does romance really credibly. Like even in that reading, right? We know the book's called Romantic Comedy. You've given us a big clue, right? But you've got a guy doing stinky burps. And I'm thinking, yeah, great. I'm, I'm, I'm down with that for a start. And uh, how, how have you kept it credible? There are a couple of things in here. Like we're all married on this podcast, right? Um, you don't have to say not what to they are. Not to each <laughs> oh, other. Yeah, the three of us. Yeah, three yeah. <laughs> it's the new rock and roll. We're in a throuple. Uh, and um, some of these things that happen that you write about in the book, uh, definitely I've had romantic encounters like that. And it made me cringe for my own history. Did you get that, Nat? Was it, you don't even have to say what they are, but as you're reading it, it's believable is what I mean. You're not reading this thinking, yeah. It is well, believable, but personally, I don't get that because obviously I'm so British that I repress all my feelings. <laughs> so they're just stuffed way down there. Wait, so when you identify with, with sort of parts of the book, it, you identify with the kind of cringe-inducing parts or with the sort of romantic both. sweet parts? Both, of yeah, both. both. Yeah, both. Yeah. And the fact that you can do both, you see. You, don't, you haven't gone one way or the other. It feels really 360, which is a horrible phrase to use. But do you know what I mean? How do you how do you do it? How do you write it and go, I need that to be relatable? How do you know it's relatable when you're writing it? Well, it's so funny. I think that probably it would be disastrous if I tried to write something relatable. You know, I think I just try to make the characters really specific and make them like, I don't know. I mean, so I'm I'm 47 in the in the book. 
um, Sally is the exact same age as the Night Owls, the the you know fictional show. And in real life, I'm the exact same age as, as Saturday Night Live. We were both born in in 1975, and so I think some of it is is you know, and I I actually you know like I I think as a woman. I'm supposed to like hate and dread getting older. And, and I think that it's like so interesting and, you know, people have so many like interesting life experiences and I talk very openly to my friends. And, um, and so I just think, you know, whether it's, it's like people I know who've, you know, gone on terrible dates or like had relationships that were really beautiful and then they blew up or like they were really beautiful and then they resulted in marriages. I mean, you just, I I just feel like I have more of an appreciation for like the breadth of experience in romance and relationships than I probably did 20 years ago and more compassion for people in them and, and more, um, like I think something that I didn't know when I was younger is sort of how vulnerable people are. And it's not like you reach some age and then you're you're figured out and you're like buffered from having feelings. And especially that age is not like 30 or whatever I would have thought it was, you know? So it's like, I think that somebody can be like dating in their late sixties and be just as like tender hearted as a teenager. And so it's like, I, I think I just try to kind of, have an outlook of, you know, not being super mushy, but being kind of compassionate about the complexity of the the human experience and what it is to be alive. (laughs) I want to read a bit from quite early on. Uh, I will tell you that it's an interaction between Sally and Noah, but I won't give much more than that to to do with the setting because it's the dialogue that's important. He glanced at me. What makes a romantic comedy non-condescending and ragingly feminist besides an Indigo Girls soundtrack? And Sally replies, mostly the quality of the writing and related to that, the character development. When one of those movies doesn't work, it's usually because it's horribly written and or the script hasn't done the work of convincing you the couple is attracted to each other. So then you don't care if obstacles get in their way and keep them apart. Another of my pet peeves is that female characters used to all be sort of cutesy, like having flour on their nose after they bake cookies and not knowing it. And now they're all a mess, like waking up really hungover and getting fired. I want to create characters who aren't flawless, but also aren't ridiculous or incompetent at life. And I thought that must surely have been your mission. And A, you've achieved it. And B, I'm so glad you've identified that. We did, didn't we? We went through this kind of Sandra Bullock era of, oh, a little bit of flower in the nose. You're so cute. To everyone being like a, a wreck and an emotional wreck and trying to find love. And you're like, where's the middle ground? Where's like people like us who aren't that much of a wreck? We're just a bit socially clumsy because no one's taught us sexual etiquette behavior. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I mean, I do, I, I, like, I think that there are, and I this I don't think this this is um, based on genre or category. Like I think there are forms of pop culture that do condescend to the reader or the viewer, and forms that don't. Whether it's movies or books or TV shows or music or, and and I prefer the kind that that doesn't. <laughs> so and I think I I try to read that and I try to write that. Um, but I mean you can find like i don't know i it's sort of interesting like i think sometimes i don't know that there can be this element of some sometimes um i mean i don't i don't want to like bash other people's work but but like if if i think of a certain kind of um 
maybe romantic comedy from like 20 years ago like sometimes it feels almost like someone who who doesn't know women in their 20s wrote it or made it or something who doesn't know like they're like you know most uh, like like almost everybody has some intelligence some people don't have like a comprehensive intelligence but almost yeah. everyone has some intelligence and like perspective on themselves and their lives I think that's kind of what I was trying to say at the start as well was that I like adore popular culture and I always have but um my kind of uh bugbear has always been that some people are, are automatically dismissive of popular culture and just as with everything else there's good pop culture and there's stuff that's not done very well you know the same as you could level it like so-called high art or you know like oh huge, absolutely. you know there's good and there's bad in all in all of it but you can't just dismiss an entire uh genre just because it's mainstream um I love that I saw that you were uh tweeting about Robin Lee's The Idea of You we had her on oh, here a few years I've... ago like that book is immense oh so good magnificent magnificent <laughs> such a good book um but there are some kind of people who wouldn't even go near it because you know it had like a picture of sunglasses on the front and you know it was maybe marketed more towards a female audience and um yeah I just don't see the point in being reductive in that way I suppose um but I do kind of love that that idea of popular culture that you clearly have such a love and a passion for as well is like drilled down throughout this book and it's the details that always do it right so you know Indigo Girls such a good example <laughs> I love Closer I Am to Fine um how many kind of of those references are your personal true loves and how many did you kind of try and assign them specifically to the characters I think a combination I mean again I don't um like sometimes when I'm writing a novel I feel like I'm like a, a bird building a nest and I'll like use anything to try to you know be in service of the book or make the book as as good as it can possibly be and I think that's my goal above all rather than like like I don't think I'm trying for kind of my own emotional catharsis I don't think I'm trying to like make myself look good I don't think I'm trying to like invent my ideal characters um so you know like again they might say something that echoes something that I believe but I I'm always trying to to like in a particular scene I'm trying to do whatever I feel like will serve that scene or make that scene as strong as possible more than I'm ever trying to get my own viewpoint across and when building the characters does each one have like a bit of your wall to themselves or do they have a notebook or are they each uh, assigned are they assigned like clothes a band a food that they love how do you do it no well so actually I um when I was in graduate school for writing which was 20 years ago I got a very interesting piece of advice from a professor um a writer named Chris Offit and he said whenever you're creating a character you should have an idea of who the character most physically resembles and who the character most sort of has a personality like um and those probably aren't the same person so it might be like you know looks like someone I went to school with when I was eight and you know has the personality of my you know current neighbor or something like that but it, it kind of helps you think about a person from the inside out instead of from the outside in. And even if you're thinking about like what gesture would that person make or like what food would that person, you know, order from a restaurant, you can, you kind of have like a framework to fall back on. 
And what comes to you first or does it change? Is it the characters or is it the the story, the plot that you see them going on? So with this, it was the plot. So, th- so what happened with, with this book, and there can be actually a startling lack of self-awareness on my part where, you know, speaking of Twitter, more than once I've either started to tweet or actually tweeted like, ha ha, wouldn't this be a funny idea for a novel? And then, and then sometimes I think, oh, wait, like that actually would be a real idea. And yeah. I didn't tweet this idea <laughs> out, but I did think to myself, so my family was watching a lot of Saturday Night Live during the pandemic. And I thought to myself, someone should write uh, a screenplay for a romantic comedy about a female writer on a show like Saturday Night Live who writes a sketch about essentially men dating up, dating these celebrities and how it never happens. Like a female writer from the show never dates a male celebrity. And then a few months passed and I thought, oh, that, that, screenplay should be a novel and that someone who should write it should be me. <laughs> like, I know a writer who's interested in Saturday Night Live. That's because I did see when I was like um sort of looking up some recent interviews there was an interview you did around Rodham which is probably around that time I guess where um you were sort of trying trying to get your point across you were saying that even though it was like a creative you know, fictional account of how different Hillary Rodham's life could have been. You said that you saw that as more of like a Saturday Night Live skit. Well, it's funny because, yeah, it's I've made that comparison, which does, again, seem like startlingly yeah. lacking in self-awareness in retrospect. <laughs> Not for the, I mean, when I wrote my book, American Wife, so that book came out in 2008, I believe maybe at least two years before I wrote an essay where I said, Laura Bush's life resembles a great novel. <laughs> and then, and then, like, you know, a year and a half later, I thought, oh, wait, if it re- so when you're having those novel- thoughts, are you, are you simultaneously, like, having meetings with your agent where you're like, yeah, I just don't know what my next idea is. Like, there's like... Kind of. I mean, it's, I, I, I'm not one of those people who actually has a lack of ideas. Like, I have more ideas than I'll ever execute. But I, I so with this one specifically, um, I actually, when Rodham came out, I, you know, I would, people would say, well, what are you going to write next? And I would say, I want to write something short and fun. And I started another novel and worked on it for like eight months and realized it was neither short nor fun. <laughs> <laughs> and I set it aside and and like, it was kind of like, like, I think probably a part of me thought, oh, that romantic comedy idea almost is like, too light or too fun or maybe it's not you know a legitimate basis for a novel and then I thought since I know we can swear I thought fuck it I'll write it anyway yeah 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 (laughs) we're so glad that you did yeah Yeah, are there um now let me catch this question carefully um are there rules you have to obey when you're writing a rom-com I remember I mentioned Sandra Bullock earlier I remember seeing her on a chat show here when the proposal came out and she said that it's either Will they get together or won't they? Or it's, you know, they will, and it's how. And those seem to be, that was, she was saying those were the two rules for a rom com. But then I thought of 500 Days of Summer. Have you seen that? Strangely, I haven't. Oh, okay. It's Joe Gordon Levitt. Yeah, I, I'm Deschanel. familiar. It's, it's so strange. There's some definite hole. I feel like if it came out in the years that my kids were little, there's like, yeah, it was maybe mid 2000s, I think. And, yeah. um, 
I mean, I kind of I think the statute of limitation on spoilers is up because I'm going to say that they, they don't <laughs> they don't get together, right? Yeah. So I thought. So is there then a third way for a rom com? Is it okay to write something where it doesn't quite work out? Well, people discuss actually what's referred to as the HEA, the happily ever after, and and I think some people would say a romance a romance in order to be a romance has to have an HEA. Um, you know. I don't know it's it's funny i mean we were talking about again i don't know i don't know if the statute of limitations has passed for spoilers on um the idea of you by mm. robin lee but i was yeah. just thinking of that yeah you know yeah. does that have an hea like i don't i mean uh is that a romance i don't know it's i also um you know don't think that much in categories like it's it's sort of like the the world tells me what i wrote like you know, my first novel prep, like it was sort of like, oh, you wrote this, you know, literary novel about class and status and coming of age. And then, you know, I write um, like Rodham and somebody will say, oh, you wrote fan fiction. And it's like this kind of fan fiction. And then if I write romantic comedy, they'll say like, oh, OK, you wrote a romance. And it's sort of like, um, I, I think... I don't think any of those assessments are wrong. I think they're right. But I also think that a lot of times books are put into categories for booksellers purposes and for publishers, you know, sort of sorting more than writers think in in kind of strict terms like that. And because you've had such variety, did you ever get any stay in your lane? It's something Natalie and I talk about a lot in this podcast. You know, you have one successful book and the publisher goes, brilliant, Kerching, do another one like that. Yeah. Um, I mean, no one has ever said the word stay in your lane. And I've been in, in the U.S., I've had the same publisher for close to 20 years. And in the U.K., I've had the same publisher for, I think, probably, let's see. I mean, maybe like, I think... 15 years or, or 13 years or something. Um, I mean, I, I think what I wanted, I've written, you know, short stories. And I think short stories are are, are sort of like um, a writer's form or something. You know, it's like normal people <laughs> often don't like them. Um, although I think people in publishing do. Um, so I, like, I think if I said, I want to renounce novels forever and only write short stories i think my publishers would say well we would like to pay you significantly less because your sales will probably plunge but like i don't think they would tell me not to yeah but i kind of think you're in that sort of um that there are some people that you can i well i don't know if this is true or not but you could almost like write whatever you like so without getting too fangirly it's that kind of thing that you sort of trust your choices is is a bit like um so David Nichols I'd say is probably another one who's sort of elevated at that level sort of on the cusp between what they might call popular fiction and literary fiction you kind of cross into both and you kind of you know take a bit of each audience um and so there is like a a style of your writing that whatever subject you want to delve into I think the style is still there right because it's you're writing it I hope so. I mean, and I feel incredibly lucky. Like I, I feel very very lucky as a writer in general. And one of the things I specifically feel lucky about is like, I can say to my, um, my editors in the UK and in the US, I can say like, this is what I want to write next. And I think they'll say, okay, we look forward to seeing that. Like, I don't, I don't think that they would 
ever try to tell me not to write something I was interested in, which might weirdly, I might be in some sweet spot of success where I'm actually, I'm not too successful. Like (laughs) some, there's some threshold I'm above, (laughs) but then there's also some (laughs) level I'm below where it's sort of like, you, you know, it like it the yeah yeah I think I think that they do trust me and even I I think that I've made a few slightly strange choices and they've not that I've not that all my books have sort of sold the same number but I've made some strange choices that have turned out okay like I I do think that my editors were maybe a little bit skeptical about the fact that the middle section of romantic comedy is entirely emails and and I think they were fine with the outcome so yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that. That's something I wanted to raise with you structurally because the book, this book feels to me like it's in three acts mm-hmm. and that's the middle act. And actually, you know what it did for me? It gave me a complete change of pace. And what it also does, so without giving too much away, the emails are between the two main protagonists. And so what it does then is it heightens the intimacy. I felt mm-hmm. like I was really eavesdropping on their relationship. And there are moments where those emails don't go well because email lacks tone and you've picked up on that perfectly. So you're reading it and thinking, he he's definitely he definitely fancies her. Oh, he doesn't fancy her anymore. What's, oh, she's not she doesn't want to. Oh, what? Oh, and but that's real life. Right. Well, and actually that was one of my goals that I thought, oh, it's kind of fun if if there's no exposition other than the emails, then the reader knows exactly as much as the characters do. And the reader has to kind of assess the situation with the same information. And I, I thought that that would be fun. So it's, I actually wanted readers to feel exactly what, what you feel. Um, and yeah, I did think that that would be like a sort of interesting exercise. And I think I also, you know, as a reader and a writer, I like contrast. So I kind of like like the the second chapter is different from the first chapter and different from the third chapter. And, you know, almost like you know, having a sorbet in, in the middle of your yeah, yeah. four course meal, which, of course, I don't do from one year to the next. <laughs> <laughs> Metaphorically, a metaphorical. Sorbet. I always start my dinner with an amuse-bouche. <laughs> <so. laughs> you know. I do love a canapé dinner, though. Like We do that sometimes. But you know, ah. earlier when you asked about the cringe or the happy, yeah, the email exchange, uh, I don't want to give too much away, but that I've definitely been part of that where you you think you're building a rapport with somebody on an email and then you think, well, so how's the meeting going to go? And yeah. then invariably in my experience, it goes to shit. <laughs> <laughs> because it's not three-dimensional, it's two-dimensional. I feel like there should be like, like t-shirts or pillows that are like that say what you just said like you, you're like you know you're building the rapport in the email yeah. you wonder how the meeting is going to go and of course it goes to shit because like, i mean again like i think an extremely high proportion of adults have especially in the age of like online dating have somehow been in touch with someone you know online or in texts or or emails and it's gone to shit when they meet. <laughs> yeah but I think that's I'm... kind of going back to the relatable thing as well though that's what you've done really well throughout in various kind of big scenes in this book or even like not even necessarily some of the really big ones but it's that moment of like a heightened emotion and that's when the characters fuck up because that's what you do like in your head if you're going like yeah, oh, yeah actually this yeah, is going yeah, really yeah. well I love this that's when you you say like you know as soon as it's come out of your mouth you're like I'm so stupid and then you've lost it anyway because then your brain's just going but you don't have the courage now do you to say I shouldn't have said that it was stupid so your brain's saying it but your mouth won't help you yeah 
I know. But although I also do think, um, and I think this is, you know, been true for me or for my friends or something, like, like sometimes if there's a relationship and you feel like, oh my God, if only I hadn't ruined everything by saying that. But I, I actually think that probably if there's a budding relationship that you can ruin by saying one awkward thing, like it wasn't meant to be. And in some ways, <laughs> maybe like a relationship lasts because the other person is kind of like, you know, it wouldn't have been my first choice that you said that, but we, we can get past this moment. <laughs> yeah. And just structurally as well, because um, both Phil and I, unsurprisingly we write too Curtis we obviously know we're at your level but who'd have thank it like journalists wanting to like write um uh you've got a prologue and an epilogue did you always have that were you always going to do that because I know it's one of those things we are like oh should I like put in that like teaser yeah. and should I like wrap it up with a bow at the end I think I did. I mean, I think especially writing a prologue feels like dipping your toe in the water or something. And I, I'm certainly one of those writers who's like, like very low standards for myself while I'm writing. So I'll think like, I'll just try this. If it doesn't work, I'll just, I'll, I'll pull it out. But like, there's, there's little disincentive to, to, you know, not try things. Can I put one more quote to you from the book? This again is Sally, so there's no spoilers in this. I'm not sure whether it, it's reverts back to what you said about screenplays, right? I'm not sure whether a genius reveals the details of a screenplay, but I do reveal the details of mine to a select few. It's about a single Supreme Court justice who falls in love with a lawyer who regularly argues cases in front of her. Or maybe it's about a single advertising exec who oversees a cat food brand and falls in love with the single advertising exec who oversees the dog food brand. Or maybe the other single advertising exec oversees the rival cat food brand. Or... Well, welcome to my brain. Now, when I read that, now, it's very funny, but I thought, how important was it to you for what they did? I know you clearly love SNL and we've talked about it being set in an SNL setting, but the relationship, could they have been doing other jobs? Um, That's a good question. I think that they are suited for each other in certain ways where, you know, he's a huge celebrity and she actually is more accustomed to being around celebrities than 99% of the population, you know? So she's, she's sort of not a celebrity, a celebrity herself doesn't want to be, but, but is used to it. And then he, you know, writes his own song. So it's like, he's, they're both creative. They're both writers. They, and they, I think they also um, know that consuming kind of light, fun entertainment for a large population can be fun and can also be a total grind and like can require a lot of hard work um yeah. so i think they, they there's they have insights into each other's worlds that most people wouldn't have you know the thing you said earlier the piece of advice about you visualize how a character oh, looks yeah. and then the personality who was can you mind me asking who noah was because i i had um keith urban Oh, that's so funny. It's actually okay. So the short answer is no. I I can't. <laughs> but okay. the longer, I'll, I'll I can like whisper it after the podcast. Okay, fine. Is it because we'd like, all get sued or something? Probably. But the but the the I mean, we'd be we'd be like sued for um you know like reputation enhancement. Like who wouldn't sure, want to be exactly, there? Exactly. But it's actually it's really funny, um because people have a bunch of different guesses about the inspiration for Noah and people have really different guesses based on their own age group. So someone might be someone who's like in their twenties might be like, is it Justin Bieber? Is it Harry Styles? Is it, is it Sean Mendes? And then someone maybe 
in their 40s like me might be like oh is it um you know john legend is it bruno mars you know is it ed sheeran or and then someone recently said to me is it richard marx and i thought richard marx like <laughs> it is not richard marx i will R- richard marx he's a lovely guy he's been on my radio show he's a lovely um, guy. I, 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 I and beloved uh, but yeah but mm. but uh, but it's it is like i think people kind of bring their own their own bias graphic yeah yeah uh, I'm not I a massive really... Keith Urban fan. It was just the hair. Who was in your oh, mind, Nat? Uh, well, we've had this before. I, d- I don't have people in my no? head when I'm reading books. I don't. Just, just at night when you're trying to sleep. No, I, like, I don't. Um... <laughs> That's when Keith, Keith Urban is in my head when I'm trying to sleep. <laughs> yeah, he does I've done have a... kind of suspiciously great hair. He does. And he's always very smiley. Um, I have like done a podcast recording with him in some of my day job work as well. And he was lovely. He was really nice. Um, and he does write very, uh, you know, like affectionate love yeah. songs yeah. to his wife. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he does. Um, sort of on that theme, I was going to ask about how those kind of misconceptions that we all have about what really famous people are actually like. And it's, you know, it's a bit like we what you were saying about how books are marketed like people in the pop world especially but also in acting are marketed a certain way right because of either the roles they take or the songs that they they put out and I really like that you play with that as well with the character of of Noah um was that just something you're fascinated by too like in terms of you know the sort of mis misimpressions that the public has about yeah I mean I do I, I think that um like I don't really feel like I I deliberately choose to write about celebrity, but I often end up writing about celebrity. And I think that one of the things that's, I think there's two things that are interesting to me about it. One is you don't really know what's real and what's fake in this whole, I mean, you don't know this about people that we interact with like in mm. normal life, but then it's, it's sort of magnified with celebrities. And so it's like, if a celebrity you know, post something on social media, like maybe sometimes clearly it's like some, you know, ad or whatever, some, some endorsement deal. But then if it's like some more personal thing, like, is it true? Is it totally fake? Is it engineered to get hits? Is it, is it like a cry for help? And that confusion that like, where you can't dismiss it as total fakery is weirdly interesting. Um, I mean, I also think I'd be curious since, you know, you both obviously have interacted with plenty of celebrities. Um, I I also think that there's this kind of um, contrarian wish among non-famous people for celebrities to be sort of, you know, like, oh, they're they're mostly dumb or they're like, you know, it's it's all smoke and mirrors and they're not that good looking. And like I've I've met not tons and tons, but, you know, probably a few dozen. And I feel like they tend to be, um, like really charming, really charismatic, you know, really driven. Like it's not an accident that a lot of celebrities are celebrities and like, really like, like unreasonably good looking. (laughs) Are are you aware that all those traits also fit the psychopath test? Ha! Is that true? That is true. Yeah, that that is true. Wait, yeah. being charming. Charming being is a big lovely. psychopathic skill. You're making you feel like you're the only person in the room. Do you think that most celebrities are psychopaths? No, no, not most. Some, 
Um, some definitely. I think most CEOs are psychopaths. I would believe that. <laughs> uh, but I think my rule with celebrities is, uh, isn't it great? We can be candid on a podcast. <laughs> uh, my rule with celebrities is that the more famous and more successful they are, the nicer and kinder they are because they've got nothing to prove to you. They don't care whether you like them or not. So they're just giving you them. Whereas the ones I've interviewed that are on the way up, they're the harder work. They're the ones I've had awkward moments with. Apart from the time Liz Hurley told me to fuck off, she was pretty big when she told me to fuck off. So, and hi, so hi, do you think, you think you think the ones who are, that's surprising to me because in some ways I would think that people on their way up would, would know like, or would feel like every, every interaction. I think they're more counts. insecure. So they think, why is he asked that question? What's he trying to get oh, up? Where is she? Michael Caine's, Tom Hanks, Tom Cruise's. Yeah. They're just like, they will give you what you want. You know, Will Smith, I know he's kind of in celebrity prison at the moment for slapping Chris Rock, but I've done three interviews with him and he couldn't give you enough. He knew exactly what you wanted. Yeah. He was happy to play your game. Didn't want to play yeah. his game. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, and I, I feel that way that like that when I've, yeah, interacted with, you know, it's, and sometimes it's been like interviewing someone on stage, like interviewing a, a celebrity on stage or something. Um, and it does, yeah, like it feels like they're they're good at what they do. Oh, you know, they they have an understanding of what the audience wants. Yeah, you've you've stayed quiet on this conversation, Natalie. No, I'm just thinking it kind of it depends on the person, really, because I I don't think I'd I think sometimes that kind of middle, like just below, like super a list. That's the kind of can be the really tricky one, I think, yeah, when they have exactly. loads of people around them, but you don't know how much of that is um, coming from their team. But then you've got to think, well, they've hired that team. So it clearly has in some way. But Were you in the uh, Newsbeat office with me when Puff Daddy rocked up? Were you there mm, that day? If you were there, so. you wouldn't forget because he turned up with an entourage that we counted of 32. <gasps> we're like, what are they all doing? Yeah. I believe he had a person who used to carry an umbrella above him. <laughs> that was their job. So that's yeah. one. I don't know about the other 31. I mean, some of them are set up. So, okay, so I'll give you a couple of examples. So sure. I've interviewed Jay-Z a number of times as well. And one 99. time we had to interview. <laughs> one time we had to, it wasn't just me, but he flew into the UK um, on a private jet, obviously. And they uh, got the journalists out to the private airfield. I think it was near Luton. And we just kind of one by one had to go into the private jet to interview him. But it was all kind of set up in such an intimidating fashion because <laughs> oh, wow. he literally just sat on the plane in like a throne um, ah! flanked by <laughs> flanked by people in his team. And you kind of walked up the plane. You're already like cacking yourself. <laughs> um, and then you had to like sit and do like a radio interview with Jay-Z, who was like super charming, actually, when you get there. But everything around it is such a like a, a thing. But having said that, I think he gives real genuine answers whereas um say like tom cruise and leonardo dicaprio love their films and stuff i used to think i'd love to be able to spend like you know that kind of old style magazine way of like spending a weekend with them to try and get under the skin and actually with both of them i don't think you'd ever get under the skin because they're so guarded on what they give out as their persona or what they want to project and put out into the world that you could spend as long as you like and they would never crack you'd get like the charm offensive and it would be great but they'd actually tell you nothing yeah it's well it is so interesting because it's like it's also like seems so i mean one that's all fascinating and i hope i hope you're you're using that in your fiction now um but i feel like it, it seems like so 
undesirable to me to be that kind of like super super famous celebrity yeah. where you just can't hang out or you know you well can't you can't ever go like, oh, like it's just yeah. shit like you can't kind of I literally I wouldn't be able to keep it up I couldn't I don't know maybe yeah. it, it would feel like it's just an act the whole time and then yeah. I mean I guess that is why sometimes like the really big ones like do you have massive meltdowns publicly? But yeah. Do you remember yeah. when uh, Daniel Radcliffe just finished Harry Potter and did Equus in the West End? Are you familiar mm. with Equus? Yeah, I, I remember. Yes, yes. yes. And, I and saw the, it. He was, did you see like, it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and so if you <laughs> haven't seen it, you're not familiar with it. It's, it's basically about a guy who kind of fancies horses, right? And he's outside <laughs> the, the theatre one night signing autographs and doing photos with fans. Right? And a friend of mine was walking past that theatre to go to another venue in the West End. And he, he heard he heard someone on the shit on the street look. He said, "I saw him look. I thought he's clocked that it's Harry Potter, right? This guy, just a, a member of the public." And then he summons up all his strength and he shouts, "Oi, Potter! Leave those fucking horses alone!" <laughs> and that, if you're super famous, you've got to put up with that. That's coming your way every day. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I think Daniel Radcliffe's like a great example because he's he's great. Like you interview him and he's you feel like you are. He's giving you genuine answers and he's doing interesting projects and. He's not kind of like caught up in some of the craziness that comes with everything else. But um Do you feel yeah, Curtis, I... you've got have you got the best setup in that you are a hugely successful writer, but you aren't treading that red carpet gamut every day? Um, I mean the sh the the short answer to that would be yes. Like I feel I feel super lucky. I mean, the the truth is, and and again, I I think I've like thought about this enough that I I sincerely don't don't wish that um that like I got more attention. I don't think the public generally knows or cares who almost any writers are like other than Stephen King. And so it's not like, I, like occasionally when I do interviews, <laughs> you know, people sometimes will almost say something like, Oh, do you feel like the pressure of public attention? And, and then I'll turn around and try to say to like, you know, my kids, like, like people think, like I get a lot of like almost like I'm desperately trying to impress them or like or like like I'll be like some people think I'm a really talented writer and that I have an impressive career and they're they're like oh gosh like like we're so we're so embarrassed for you but so your kids not... aren't the best barometer for that are they I, mean, I know at, I know at six but... and three mine are just about to discover I'm not the funniest person in the house <laughs> and, and enjoy, my heart will enjoy. break yeah. do you know what I mean because no, at the moment that's... I am. <laughs> But no, I don't, I mean, I, I, I feel like, um, like, I do think that, like, I, I think there are perks to my life that I really appreciate, but, but it's, it's safe to say I don't struggle to like lead the life of a normal, it's not, I am not being approached in, you know, the grocery store and I, I don't wish to be approached in the grocery store. So it works out beautifully. She's not currently doing this interview in a throne, Natalie. <laughs> No, no, I am. I I am on my private plane. Actually, <laughs> well, it's so funny because when you the, the story about JC, like I think, oh my god, after having flown over, wouldn't he have just wanted to like get, get up and walk, yeah. <laughs> get some fresh air? Yeah, That's he's got to watch DVT at his age. Yeah. One of my other favorite things with JC too was like being in um uh interviewing him one time in a really fancy hotel and uh having to just but the interview kept getting a bit delayed because his people obviously through jc he really wanted a, a grilled cheese sandwich um basically in the uk they just kept bringing him like a cheese toasty which 
I, I don't know how often you've been over here, a fair amount, I imagine, but they're kind of like different. So like a cheese toaster will be like really dry on the outside. It'll just have melted cheese in the middle. And it's quite a kind of like 1980s. You'll like put it almost in like a kind of like George Foreman, like grill type thing oh, yeah, where yeah, 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 but yeah. there's no like kind of butter and stuff. Much, yeah, quite a, yeah. Quite a claggy thing. And he's just like, I just want a grilled cheese. <laughs> like They just can't get it. <laughs> yeah, it's so it is so funny because, again, just I mean, like the infrastructure around a celebrity like like it's it's it does feel like how how could it be worth it I don't know yeah and how could it be I, I would like literally ask for anything you would want at any time of day wherever you are you know it's like nobody ever says no to you it's weird but I don't think that's probably good for you I think no, it's, it's awful for, for you no it's awful that's why there are some people who are horrendous human beings yeah but, yeah 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 anyway I feel we straight off writing but I love it <laughs> I think I think your listeners will be thrilled Look, I <laughs> yeah it's true do you want to ask recommendations or shall I you can yeah we always ask our writers Curtis just to recommend us something at the end of the podcast something you've loved that you've read it can be anything fiction non-fiction new old doesn't matter okay can I recommend something that's coming out in June it's not mm-hmm. out yet yeah, Maybe you might want to interview this person. I was so, okay, say, so yeah. this, this is it's a first novelist. It's a person I don't know. Um, and I randomly got this book in the mail and started reading it and just felt like holy shit. Um, and I'm I actually am like maybe 12 pages from the end, which I almost can't believe I I like <laughs> didn't finish it during work hours today. But okay, so the book is called Everything's Fine, and the writer is named I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing her name correctly, but it's, I think it's Cecilia Rabis or Rabis, R-A-B-E-S-S. And it's about, it takes place in the United States. It's about um, these two recent college graduates, a, a black woman and a white man, and she's politically liberal. He's politically conservative. They work together at Goldman Sachs and just in terms of, I mean, some of the things we were talking about earlier, the character development is like phenomenal. The dialogue is magnificent. It's such a good book. And and fascinatingly, the two things I know about the author based just on, on what's on the back of the advanced copy is she worked at Goldman Sachs in real life and she now works at Google. So I, she is like a fucking genius. Like she, like, it's like, I can't, I'm always can't believe it when someone can be a writer and do other things, you know, like real jobs. Um, it's an incredible, incredible book. And I have a feeling it'll get a lot of attention. It should. Well, do you know what's interesting about that? We had Scott Turo on right mm. and i asked him why he hadn't been as prolific as some of the other people in his field like say mike conley lee child and he said because i was a practicing lawyer and, and so he's backing up what you're saying is basically you can't do two oh jobs. No. interesting interest i mean he's he's relatively pro- well how many I, I guess maybe how on average how often does he have a book come out every couple so of I years think, i think he'd only done 12 when i did a tut up yeah huh 12 sounds like quite a lot to me at this point. I know it's it's all relative it's all relative it sounds like a lot to me still too <laughs> um, I just wanted to ask seeing as we were talking about celebrities you must have had that thing where because I think people who like your writing love your writing so Aww. have you had those moments back at you where you're like holy 
crap like this person I really admire is like oh, said yeah. they like my writing and then you kind of have a weird Twitter exchange or like do you get to meet them yeah. like okay so yes I have a good one Judy Bloom yeah. <laughs> likes my writing like what what more yeah. could I ever wish for in this life and like I've met her a few times she's like the loveliest warmest person in the world um so that's definitely like an incredible incredible thrill for me yeah I, I mean I I definitely I think something I really love is if somebody knows something about the world that I've written about like if someone is a political reporter and they read Rod and they said oh my god like I I loved it like you totally nailed this or like they worked in the White House um so I do I I do kind of want to hear if anyone <laughs> If anyone from Saturday Night Live reads romantic comedy. Yeah, you're waiting for like Kate McKinnon and Oh my god, that then I truly will retire. Like if (laughs) if, I I don't think I'll hear from I Kate Kate McKinnon, I I think has a relatively like she has a kind of quiet public presence other than Mm -hmm. being a performer. So as with Lauren Michaels, I am not holding my breath to hear from either of them, but I would I would like to. (laughs) That would be cool. That'd be very cool. Uh, I just know that we've both. I, I don't often speak for Natalie. It's a dangerous thing to do, but I know. Yeah, why would you do that, freaking man? Like speaking it. over a woman, just shut up, Bill. <laughs> so thank you so much. We've really, really enjoyed chatting with you. It's been magnificent. Um, likewise, like I learned so much about Jay Z and many other topics. <laughs> do you, what if you presumably you're writing something now? Like obviously you can't tell us about it, but. Uh, no, it's so funny. I've 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 thought to myself because you know I feel very distracted at at publication time or or you like happily distracted, and so I've um been trying to write a short story and I've sort of failed at that. But but you know whatever. Like I'm I'm just gonna <laughs> you know read for a while and just you know things will quiet down soon. And then the idea will kind of is that when you have to kind of start is when it's so kind of pervasive in your head you're just like yeah I gotta go no I mean I already have a few ideas it's more just kind of focusing and sitting in front of my computer in an uninterrupted way and it's I think actually it can be useful to not be writing and to be developing ideas and and sort of in a low pressure way and instead of thinking like wait what should happen next what should happen next it's almost like when I'm be creative now do it now yeah 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 but instead it's like walking through an airport nowhere near my desk then I'll think oh like that's what should happen to that character almost because I'm not trying yeah I can't wait to see what happens next as well and like if any of these get make it to the screen and that kind of world too so I know we'll see it's a minefield it's a minefield (laughs) so let me tell you she was true to her word and as soon as we finish recording she did tell us who Noah's based on. And oh, you'd never guess it in a month or something. Like, I would never have guessed. Did you? I'm kind of annoyed. No. I think I I think if I'd properly thought about it, I could have guessed that. Um, but, well, you we know, should you explain. Should... It's a composite, isn't it? So Yeah, it's not one I, person. I wouldn't have got to you know who. I'd would you maybe not? Got, I don't know. I'd have maybe got to the one you like, but not but that, to... That's only because you... This is... I'm really sorry if you're listening. And this is just really annoying because, like, you know, we don't. Uh, um, but... <laughs> Yeah, it's, I, think it's, it, I think it adds to the tension. <laughs> yeah. I think, but like, if I was listening to this, I'd be like, I'm definitely buying that book now. Who on earth could it be? I also, I also wa- love that we all guess different people. Yeah. And the mm-hmm. range of guesses she said she'd had for Noah. 
It's incredible, yeah. isn't it? It shows what bias you bring to it. That's why, you know, whenever there's a dramatization, mm. and I'll say to you, should I watch that on Sunday night? Will it be any good? You've read the book and you always say, read the book first. Always. And that's why, because <laughs> the power of the imagination, isn't it? Yeah, I'm so bad. Like I'm not going to betray her trust by saying it was, but I just really want to no, say who she's. No. I'm not. I know I'm not going to. So we give her our, our word. But I do want to go listen to that person's music because yeah. it's hilarious uh, in a good way. But I so enjoyed that conversation, and I know I've said that before, but like I could just talk to her for hours, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, and that's, and also I got a real sense from that interview that we did why the book's so funny. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and the way that she views life and that kind of you know she yeah i think she's superb i think that was you know what a person yeah. and now i just want to go and do a long lunch with her with you as well yeah. you know what I mean? and just ask some more do yeah. you know what I mean? and that's always the mark of you know it's the old yeah. showbiz adage isn't it leave them wanting more <laughs> is it yeah no that would be great that would be so fun yeah it's never gonna happen might do who, who knows what can happen right let's manifest it maybe it will i can't believe you said that as a woman who's been on a private jet with jay-z <laughs> i mean surely if if anything can happen that's the proof isn't it yeah quite, can quite i tell possibly. you my snoop dog story uh, yeah, go on then. I, I didn't want to. Um, I didn't want to do it because it was all a bit. Like, I didn't want it to feel like I was willy waving in the podcast. But um, when you <laughs> mentioned Jay Z, that now anyway. Just to you, mm. when it, when you mentioned Jay Z, it reminded me of at uh, Live Eight in two thousand and five. I was and, at Live Eight. Were you there? Yeah, back, I was. So we were doing interviews backstage. Yeah, yeah, I was. You know that kind of caravan area at the back where. Mm. The, so we had a little studio set up in there, and my producer came up and he went, "I think we're going to get Snoop." And I went, "You're kidding." And he said, no, I think he's I think he's going to do us. So Snoop, and he's really tall, Snoop. I know I'm six foot four. I think he's yeah. bigger than me. And he comes across and he's got a tracksuit on, as you would anticipate. He's eating a bag of Walker's crisps and he's drinking a Vimto, right? And I thought this is meant to be the <laughs> hardest man in hip hop. And But he, around his neck, he's got this um, necklace that's a silver pistol, right? Mm -hmm. So I thought, and it was a not a live interview. It was a pre-recorded interview. So I thought, you've got to do the whole setup. You know? So I said, yeah, I'm backstage at Live 8 with Snoop Dogg. I said, Snoops, what's happening? I thought you were the hardest man in hip hop, but right now you're eating Walker's Chris and you're drinking Vimto. What's going on? Just try and break the ice. Yeah. And he laughed. He roared. His head went back laughing. And then when he looked at me, he fixed me in the eye and he went, you are crazy motherfucker. And I thought, oh, we can't put that out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm relieved it wasn't live. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, and if part of me now wants to like apologize, we don't usually swear as much, I think, as we did in that episode, but we were recording it quite late. Uh, there is an explicit time. warning on these. I yeah, yeah, no, I know. Yeah, I know. But some, I think I was quite sweary. But I quite like swearing. So it's it. one way to articulate your <laughs> your feelings, isn't it? Also, when you're telling stories about celebrities, it's pretty hard not to because most of them swear. I think yeah, that was the do. context, wasn't it? Yeah, but the overall thing with this um, with this uh, episode is that you really should read romantic comedy. It's so fun. Like it's just one of those books that will kind of take you out of whatever else is going on in your world, and you'll just want to kind of dive into it and get to know I did it in three and, sittings yeah it's really and I'm really not good. I keep saying this because I think it's important I'm not a quick reader mm. but it's really easy to read this and the fact that as we discussed there the fact that the middle section is all emails it's really quick yeah. really really quick to read so yeah. you kind of zoom through that to the big climax of this story and then you kind of then you're hooked mm-hmm mm-hmm yeah and whether hopefully you liked the bonus random celebrity chat that we got onto um but either way if you do feel so inclined you can now support us as well on coffee right are we saying coffee or kofi 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 so it's ko-fi.com isn't it mm. slash bestsellers kofi isn't it yeah so it's kofi like anan like the un secretary general former 
So yeah, you can go on co-fee.com slash bestsellers and you can buy us a brew. Uh, if you're listening overseas, that's a coffee. That's a northern vernacular for a coffee. <laughs> uh, and we would very much appreciate that because it's just us. It's just me and Nat do this. There's no production on, on board, there's nothing, which you can tell. Um, and there's no guest bookers and it's just us. And we graft hard to make it good for you. So if you fancy, if you can afford to, and I realise there's a cost of living crisis going on, but if you can afford to, then we would appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thank you.